the last Sunday where we deal with this topic that Hutch and I have been discussing the last probably eight weeks. We've been talking about acceptable sins, acceptable with air quotes around them, because we've wanted to look at the kinds of ways that we participate in a kind of life that breeds further, furthers our allergies to God, but we often don't have any idea about it. Because these kinds of sins are not impolite. They're polite. These are not the kind of things that if you do them, you're going to be posted on the newspaper in a mugshot. They're not going to have some scary image of you on the local news. You're not going to have to issue any sorts of apologies for these sorts of things. Which makes us most susceptible to them, especially religious people. And if you look today... The dialogue is between a religious person, like us, and Jesus. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, obviously sensing, as he does behind lots of our kinds of questions, the questions that we think we're posing in full sincerity, he realizes there's something underneath the question. And in a maddening way, maybe you've had teachers like this or parents like this, or maybe you've had a counselor like this. Jesus rarely ever answers a question straightforwardly. Doggone it. He always answers questions with questions or with parables that are confusing. But he says... What do you think? What must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus is being put on trial by this expert in the law who the author gives us a little background and tension that's not available to everyone else. He was trying to test Jesus. Maybe he was trying to get Jesus to say something funky non-confessional about the law. Maybe he was trying to get Jesus to to say something where everybody would say, ha, he's an imposter, he's a fraud. He doesn't keep with the traditions of the elders. He doesn't follow the laws of God. But Jesus doesn't even answer. He just says, what do you think? Love the Lord your God, the lawyer says, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, right. You got it. We don't need to talk anymore. Go out there and do that. Now, first of all, it's fairly curious, isn't it? That Jesus doesn't say, well, fellow, you've got to make sure there's always a prior faith before every kind of work that you do. And so, even though it seems as if you need to love God with all you've got and your neighbor as yourself, really what needs to happen is you've got to have faith first. You need to sit at home and do some meditations and see if you can get to feeling really good and faithy. And then, then try to love people and love God and you'll be good and golden. Jesus doesn't say anything. He doesn't qualify anything. He just says, you got it, buddy. Go. Do it. Now, one wonders what would happen if after... Jesus said this to him. He hadn't have said, 
Uh, and who is my neighbor? Great. I got it, Jesus. I got what you're saying. Can you bring some clarification to these rather muddy instructions? I foresee that in the future there's going to be some kind of dispute and I'm going to need in very clear language for you to delineate for me what exactly constitutes a neighbor. Because I'm deeply concerned about neighbor love. No, we're told he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked another question. Listen to what um, the kindergarten teacher, Soren Kierkegaard, said once. He's a lot more fierce and harsh than kindergarten teachers. If your kindergarten teacher talks to your child this way, they probably are not equipped to work with kindergarten children. The great Danish philosopher said this, The matter is quite simple. And you might disagree with this, but this is what he said. The matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand. But we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. If your kindergarten teacher calls your kid that, say something to them. We Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand... We are obliged to act accordingly. Take any words in the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. If you do that, here's what will happen, he says. If you look at the Bible and say, I guess when he says don't fear, that means I'm not supposed to fear. When he tells me to be generous, he probably means that I should be generous. When God tells me to love my enemy and do good to them, it's conceivable that he means I should love my enemy and do good to them. He says, if you do that, here's the self-talk that will go on inside of you. My God, you will say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How would I ever get on in the world? If I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How would I ever get on in the world? It's interesting to me, before we get into Jesus' explanation, to consider for a moment a hypothetical hypothetical circumstance where if Jesus had said to the man, how do you read it? And he had said, love God with all you got, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, great, no your theology, do this and live. If the lawyer had said at that moment, "Uh, Jesus, Jesus, and his voice had started to crack and he had started to sweat. And he said, "Uh, I have a problem. This is something very easy to say and it's extraordinarily difficult to do. I don't know if you're aware of this, I've tried it, in fact. Since I was a young kid, my parents have told me I'm supposed to love God with all I've got, but I go whole sections of time without even thinking about Him. And even though, in general, I love humanity, when it comes to individual people, I hate their guts. And there are people that I am around sometimes, and when I have to be with them for more than a couple of minutes, they start to irritate me like I'm being bitten by fire ants. And they make me want to kill them. 
And, and so I find it very difficult when you're telling me to love them with all the energy, with all the enthusiasm, with all the gusto that I use for loving myself. You want me to apply that to them? I, don't, I can't do that. I try that and I keep coming up short every single time. It's really, it's really embarrassing to say that to you. But that's where I am. I know I'm supposed to love my husband, but have you seen my husband? And these kids you've given me? Ugh. And who on, how on earth could God have ever envisioned when he gave this command to love my neighbor as myself that I was going to sit next to this co-worker who wears way too much perfume that I'm allergic to? Heavens to Betsy, Jesus, I can't do this. It's too much. I think Jesus would have told us another story. I think he would have said different things to him. So that's instructive to us. Now, I can't prove it. I can't prove it. But I have a pretty educated guess from looking at the rest of the scripture because Jesus generally asks questions not for the benefit of him learning more things. All the questions in the Bible are for the questionee. They're all meant to reveal things about the person who's being the recipient of the question. You think God in the garden? Adam, where are you? Is he confused? The questions are for the person that Jesus is putting the question to. He's trying to reveal something. He's trying to introduce them to himself because he's a scheming swindler. And so are we. And so since the guy was trying to justify himself and instead of saying, I can't do this, it's too hard, it's too rigorous, if you take this as deeply as I'm sure you probably mean it, there's a snowball's chance in Arizona for me to ever be able to keep this. Jesus would have answered differently, but it says, but he wanted to justify himself. So his question is, specify, specify, specify. Who is my neighbor? You've heard this. You've done this, right? A few years ago, there was a famous man called the President of the United States who was on a trial for some things he had done. And he said famously, well, to one question, it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. And when you hear that, you go, ha, 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 what are you hiding, man? Well, we do that, right? On this week, this holy week, there was a... Roman governor, who when put in front of Jesus, Jesus declares himself to be way, truth, life, doesn't say, holy cow, and throws himself at his feet. He says, interesting query, what is really truth? Can we know the truth? How do we even know that we're a knower? Can we really know anything? The government says pay taxes on your income. What really is income? How do we determine such things? See, Jesus is quite clear, as we are often on the commands of God, that 
The lawyer already had in mind that he wanted Jesus to answer his question so that he could be evasive. He may not have realized that entirely, but Jesus did. That's why he puts the question to him. Here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in one place. Only the devil has an answer for our moral difficulties. Keep on posing problems and you will escape the necessity of obedience. He says that's a devil's game. You know, it started in the beginning. Did God really say that you weren't supposed to eat that yummy fruit? Did God really say, and the devil will make you, he'll suggest to you your own scheming swindlerness will make it seem very clear and obvious and right to you to ask all sorts of questions when you are confronted with Jesus' call on your life. You'll pose problems. You'll raise questions like this lawyer did. And let me be here to tell you today that Like for me, it's often just self-defense. It's a very legitimate question to say, who's my neighbor? It's a very legitimate question for earnest Christians who are trying to follow Jesus in a world where there is an unlimited amount of need, an unlimited amount of neighbors, so much demands where we can only be in one place at one time. It's a legitimate question to say, who is my neighbor? If you're interested in serving someone, just like that book, Many of you in the new sexiest major on Covenant College campus, ComDev, have read this book. Our session, our elders, I mean, our deacons have read this. I'm the chair of the Mercy Committee of our Presbytery. We've read this book, How to Hurt the Poor by Not Helping Them. I mean, that's a joke. How to Help the Poor Without Hurting Them. It's a magnificent book. Do you hear that? Report that to your teachers. It's a magnificent book. But you know what? When scheming swindlers read that book, I've seen them do it. I'm not accusing anyone in here. When scheming swindlers read that book, you know what they do? They say, oh, I could never, I'm not going to bother helping that person because I can't have a relationship with them. I'm I'm, I'm really, I'm just not going to help anybody because I might wind up hurting them. And see, that book is fantastic for people who have already become persuaded that Jesus wants you to care about poor people. That Jesus wants you to have a heart of compassion as large as his. That book is fantastic. But if you are a typical middle class, upper middle class, white Republican person, that's pretty specific, isn't it? Then you're going to read that book and you're going to find all manner of justifications to never lift your finger to help a poor person because you're worried you're going to hurt them. You're just following sound biblical principles. And you're a scheming swindler like I am. The first book needs to be how to help the poor so extravagantly, so painfully, so costly to yourself that you realize you're causing problems. But you've tried so many different things in obedience to Jesus because you so badly want to reflect Him to the world. Now here's a book for you. That's because we're scheming swindlers. So Jesus begins to tell this story because the man is trying to justify himself. So Jesus says, here's what I mean by neighbor. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, this dangerous and treacherous Path. This man was a Republican a presidential candidate. 
He was upper middle class. He was wealthy. He might have been Mormon. He fell into the hands of robbers. I'm making this more contemporary. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and they went away, leaving him half dead. Then, this pastor, this big influential pastor, walks by on the other side. And he's updating his blog. He's tweeting to his masses. And he passes by. He doesn't even notice that presidential candidate over there. And then another religious professional goes by on the other side. He's emailing some people back. He doesn't want to get dirty. He doesn't want to get his stuff messed up. So he doesn't bother either. But then an illegal immigrant. Less than half a human. Is walking by. And, oh, and he's a homosexual illegal immigrant who has AIDS. He's walking by. He sees this Republican presidential candidate who might be a Mormon beating and bleeding and left for dead on the side of the road. And he says, oh my gosh, there's a person there who bears God's image. And he sees him. And as all people who have had an invasion by God will want to do, who have been a recipient of God's mercy, he'll say, oh my gosh, I see him. And he is moved with pity. He saw him, he took pity on him, he went to him. He bandaged his wounds, wounds, pouring on. This guy, being a guy, did not have wounds. He bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on a donkey. He took him to a hotel. He did the greatest violation of developmental principles. He gave the guy a blank check. He said, whatever he needs, I'll pay up later. And after Jesus tells the story, he then asks the man again, which of these three guys, the two religious guys who passed by because they were quite busy, they could not be interrupted, they knew better than to get involved with a man like this. Which of these three men, or was it the illegal immigrant who was homosexual who had AIDS, did he... Who was who, the neighbor? And the lawyer not being able to even probably mouth the name Samaritan, so hideous and so half-breedish were Samaritans to Jews. He says, the, I guess, the one who had mercy on him. And again, Jesus says what he said at the beginning. Repeat. Repeat. So in this case, we could say, what does he mean? What is a neighbor then? What are we supposed to do? Jesus says, go and do likewise. But if you want to try to spill out something, neighborliness, I like the way Bonhoeffer puts this, neighborliness is not a quality in other people. It is simply their claim on ourselves. Your neighbor just has a claim on you. It's somebody that you come upon who needs something from you. You could say a neighbor is an interruption to your life. That's what a neighbor is. A neighbor is the destroyer of your schedule. That's what a neighbor is. The neighbor is always the person who... You don't want it to be. G.K. Chesterton said in one place, we make our friends, we make our enemies, but God makes our next door neighbor. See, Jesus doesn't want us to live in some kind of dream world 
We envision ourselves to be tender, magnanimous, gregarious, and compassionate people because we have warm feelings for when we see the TV for starving children across the world while we hate our spouse. While you don't even know the neighbor across the street, like I realized when our dog was recently murdered. And I was so mad. And I thought, there's at least seven other things they could have done besides murder Diggy. And I'm seriously mad. But then I thought, he's the only guy on the street I don't know. Failure of neighborliness. What if he knew me? Maybe he wouldn't have killed my dog. What if I had gone over and talked to him? What if I had hung out with him? Maybe my dog would still be here. And we wouldn't want to kill somebody ourselves. Jesus just says, go and do likewise. Your neighbor is someone who has a face and skin and they have a claim on you. And so you may as well expect if you belong to Jesus, what's going to happen is that your life is constantly going to be interrupted. Your plans are constantly going to be interrupted. God's going to be interrupting it. You can lean into it or you can keep defending. What's amazing though is on this week where we celebrate the death and resurrection of our Lord, Jesus came into the city on this colt, this donkey. He looked out over Jerusalem and he wept. You know who he wept over? Scheming swindlers. He wept over people who would not receive his offer of pardon, his mercy. Instead, they kept putting up barriers They kept putting up stiff arms. They kept making justifications. When he, though, was put on trial, he would not justify himself. He would not defend himself. He wouldn't even speak up for himself. You know why? Because he was justifying scheming swindlers like us. Mercy for you who try to evade me. Mercy for you who often want nothing to do with me and who evade your neighbor, mercy for you. Knowing that mercy would push us out into the world to go and do likewise ourselves. There was a story, this is my closing, of some men in the Chicago O'Hare airport. They were salesmen. They were trying to get home for Friday night. They had been gone all week. Families were waiting. Supper was waiting. And there was a girl a girl with a fruit stand in the terminal. And as they were rushing by, they bumped into her fruit stand and apples started spilling all over the floor. None of them noticed except for one. All of them made it home on time except for one. The guy who noticed went back and noticed this teenage girl frightened, harried, disoriented, trying to pick up these apples, but she was blind, you see. She couldn't see them. She couldn't ascertain what had been done to the apples, whether they were still good or bad. So he helped her and he put them back and he paid for the damaged apples. And as he walked away, knowing he was going to miss supper and miss his family and miss his flight, the girl could be heard to whisper, Are you Jesus? 
And he thought, wow, maybe it was worth the inconvenience. Let's pray.